Hello and welcome to this in-depth interview brought to you by Livewire Markets. Today's guest is Simon Mohini, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Alan Gray. Alan Gray apply a contrarian approach to investing. In today's discussion, hosted by Livewire's James Marley, you'll hear about what it means to be contrarian. You'll also discuss some research on trending share prices and why Simon believes this is cause for concern. Following that, Simon will talk about Alan Gray's big investment in the energy sector and the implications this has for ESG-conscious investors. And finally, Simon will take us through where he thinks the next contrarian ideas will come from. Simon, welcome. Great to see you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, James. Now, before we get into contrarian investing um, and, uh, and your positions in energy, uh, you published an article on Livewire at the start of the year called Picking Winners That the Crowd Is Ignoring. It was published in January 2022. Um, and what you did is you shared some research that you'd done into uh, trending share prices. And one of the conclusions you made is that trending share prices were cause for concern for investors. I was hoping for people watching this video, you could explain a bit about the research, what it showed, and how you came to that conclusion. Okay, yeah, so it, it basically took rolling three-year price performances of companies and looked at how the winners of the previous rolling three years compared to the winners of the rolling three-year period immediately prior to that. So consecutive three-year rolling periods. And when there's a lot of trending in the market, those winners of today were also the winners of yesterday or yesteryear and the year before that. And so you have several consecutive years in a row where the same companies or types of companies go on to perform very strongly. And, and that, that's a good example of, of trending. It's a rank correlation. Um, and it really shows that the market is becoming more and more dislocated from a price perspective. And, and I guess the takeaways from it are some of those sayings that you've heard, trees don't grow to the heavens. It's not possible. You can't have a small segment of the stock market become massive in the stock market at the expense of everything else or maybe an easier way to think about it is to and I don't want to pick on Tesla but Tesla make these cars which are all the rage and and have done very well and electric vehicles are a big growth area but they can't exist without a lot of the other things that feed them like aluminium Mm. and you had things like Tesla do very well and aluminium producers end up being loss-making. And the ecosystem has to coexist, otherwise Tesla can't do what it does and the aluminium companies can't do what it does. And when the market trends in, in, in one or other direction, typically it means that those two things are dislocated and that ecosystem is not functional from a price perspective. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of opportunity then to obviously position the portfolio uh, towards what have been the losers and away from the winners. Now, I'm looking at a chart. I'll bring it up for people that are watching the video. But you go back and have a look at other periods of price trend. Could you maybe just touch on where you've seen it before? Because you obviously, um, this is something that you've, has, you've been interested in looking at over a period of time rather than just the three years prior to now. Yeah, so there was, uh, the, the clearest area of trending was in the lead up to the tech boom and then bust as the trend completely reversed. But there have been others, and and they were different types of trends. That trending chart that it sounds like your viewers will be able to look at now, that that is um, not a price chart. All it does show is where various segments of the stock market have done very well at the expense of others. Um, 
it can be when that's trending upwards that the stock market's going down in price it, or vice versa. But the, the, the tech boom, you had obviously the technology, media and telecommunication stocks do incredibly well in the late 90s, very early 2000s. In 2015, the cyclical stocks did particularly poorly. And more recently, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, the growthy momentum stocks have done very well. Stable earners in the search for yield as interest rates have been very low and people have wanted a dividend yield, a reliable dividend yield. They've done incredibly well mm. at the expense of anything that has had a volatile earning stream. And that's where to- today's trending or the recent trending uh, has manifested itself. What does a complete unwind of this trend look like? And are the, you've named a few sort of examples of the types of companies there. Is that where the pain continues to be felt? Yeah, I think the unwind, it looks beautiful, actually, from our perspective. (laughs) Um, It is something that's been going on for a while. It would mean that many of... Overseas, it's the tech unwind, and that's mostly manifested itself. Certainly, if we're not well into it, we're certainly into the first innings of that. Uh, We don't have a really robust or large tech sector in Australia, so it's less relevant here. Uh, but it would be these very large or high multiple companies, you know, the West Farmers, Woolworths, Coles, uh, Domino's, IDP Education, Seek, REA, the few tech stocks we've got. It would be multiple contraction in, in almost all of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the more cyclical companies that trade at very low multiples of current earnings start to do very well. And we're beginning to see a bit of that, I think, some of the low multiple cyclical companies have begun to do better, but it's not at the expense of the others for the most part. Mm. Um, so it would be quite a big unwind in these. We have a lot of companies that have uh, price earnings ratios well into the 30s and 40s in Australia. Uh, you know, it, it's quite a significantly more expensive multiple than the likes of Apple and Alphabet overseas, which are global franchises, trade at much lower multiples and are growing at similar rates. Mm. So it would be an unwind of those very high multiple stocks, I suspect. Now, I had a look over your portfolio, um, and and if we talk about sectors where we see high multiples in Australia, healthcare is one, where there's a, a lot of companies dominated by CSL, but they, there's, there's a lot of other emerging healthcare companies that trade on quite high multiples. One health co- healthcare company has made it into the portfolio, which is Ancel. So, what's different about Ancel compared to others in the industry? In the industry, and how did it make it into your portfolio? Yeah, Ancel's quite a boring company. Uh, it makes uh, what you and I know as as rubber gloves, but I think they're mostly nitrile gloves or latex-free gloves uh, used for protection in various applications. Uh, and not all of the gloves are rubber. Of course, there's some fabric gloves. Um, but, but all companies make it into our portfolio because we feel uh, or expect and our research indicates that they are attractively priced relative to their future earnings or cash flow stream. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, all companies are worth the present value of the future cash flows that that company will deliver. It doesn't matter what company it is. Uh, and in our view, Ansel, because of its exposure to mainly developed markets, is probably a low-growth company, 3 to 5% per annum. But guess what? That is the same more or less as the broader stock market. And we think it trades at slightly less than 15 times earnings in a market that probably trades at 18 or 19 times earnings. 
And so for a reasonably stable earnings company growing more or less in line with the broader system, we think that, that it, it's an attractive entry point. It's not going to make anyone rich quickly. Um, and it's also very unlikely to make you poor fast. Uh, but, but it seems attractive. There are some issues with it, and I think it's one of the reasons why I, I think you can buy it cheaply. It hasn't benefited from COVID. It, it has been wrong-footed by an inventory cycle and, and price of these gloves. And I think and hope that in the fullness of time for those investors who are happy to wait, uh, it will be a reasonably solid contributor to our portfolio. But again, it's, it's not one of those companies where the, there's 100% upside. Um, there's probably a little bit of downside because there are risks with every single company and modest upside. Mm. But it's not the type of thing that anyone likes to talk about at a dinner table. And I find it somewhat awkward trying to explain it here now. But, but it's, a, it's a reasonably stable earning company that trades at an attractive price. Mm-hmm. All righty. Well, let's get into where you've got a lot of conviction. Um, and we have a big position as a firm across the energy sector. I did uh, a, a rough numbers, which is a, a fair description of just about all the numbers I do, and I came to around about 43%, um, including positions in Sims and Origin. Um, and the largest position is Woodside, which I understand is around 10%, and that's a position that Alan Gray initiated back in 2014, which is um, you know, way, way, way back. So my first question is, why do you think there is such a big opportunity in the energy sector? I think one of the big drivers for these companies' profits are the underlying oil and gas price. And I think it's likely that oil and gas prices are going to be at levels significantly above where they have been over the most recent five years. And there's a plethora of reasons for that, but one of which, the most important of which I think is there's been a severe underinvestment in new supply. And I think supply is likely to fall uh, much faster than demand, uh, even in a net zero 2050 world. And in, you know, the, the balancing item then becomes price. And so that would be the first thing. I think the backdrop, the underlying commodity price that will drive earnings, I suspect will be a lot higher than it has been in recent years. And then with that backdrop, if you can find companies with very long reserve lives that have reasonably low cost production and strong balance sheets, they are the type of company that would flourish under that environment. And in Woodside, which as you mentioned is about 10% of our portfolio, it ticks all of those boxes. And the price is incredibly attractive relative to what we think these long-term earnings are likely to be. And we often get questions of to what extent the Ukraine crisis has has impacted the Woodside thesis, and it it most likely has improved it somewhat. But the Woodside share price hasn't moved sufficiently to even need to recut the thesis on the back of the Ukraine crisis. So uh, at, say, $75 oil, which is a good $30, $40 a barrel lower than today's prices, or $30 lower, um, Woodside's a very attractive investment, and for that reason, we're very happy just to own it and hope that in the fullness of time, and I hope we don't have to wait another seven years to get our money, uh, but, but it, it does seem uh, far, far cheaper than most of the things that we do see in the stock market, and it's the reason it's our biggest company. Mm. We'll chat more about Woodside in a sec, but just on the, um, the view around um, oil prices, um, I know you're probably not 
in the forecasting game around those sorts of things. Could you talk me through some of the, the bear and base and, you know, the sort of assumptions that you use? And have you thought about, um, you know, uh, like everyone's thinking about higher, a lot of people are thinking about higher energy prices being sustained or oil prices being sustained. What could make them fall? What could, what, how could you be wrong on that front? Yeah, so you can afford to be quite wrong or have oil prices fall quite significantly before the underlying value of many of these energy stocks are impaired. Uh, that would be the first thing I say. But what, what would call oil, cause oil prices to fall? Uh, I guess a lot of things that we don't expect to happen, and that is a very, very significant move away from hydrocarbons, far faster than some of the most bearish assessments of uh, the energy transition. Um, that would be one new technology, uh, could be another. Uh, and very unlikely these things don't end up getting deployed overnight. Mm. You, you generally can see these things coming. Uh, an another variant of COVID that is far more severe than the most recent one we've had and causes governments and countries to lock down again. Down. I think that would be another negative. I mean, so a big hit on the demand side yeah, is what you're looking at. I think so. It mostly would be demand-driven right? because the supply the supply doesn't change very much from time to time and you know, mostly it's downward sloping from here. Okay. So. Um, if you were to look at Woodside today and imagine it wasn't a 10%, imagine it had a zero position if you were just to come to the market today, uh, would you want to buy it? Yes. There's not one company in our portfolio that is in our portfolio today that with a clean sheet of paper I wouldn't want to buy today. Yeah. I think the past is irrelevant uh, other than to the extent that it infers something that may be true in the future. And so I think it's very important to look at one's portfolio and one's investments with fresh eyes on any given day. Forget the baggage that's happened recently or over the last, in our case, six or seven years with Woodside and say, what does the next six or seven years look like? Uh, and in Woodside's case, and in all of these companies' cases, we think they're very compelling reasons to own the company. ESG, it's a topic that's um, not just bubbling away in the background, it's front and centre right now. And I understand you have a view that divesting of these companies is, is not the best approach. Could you tell me just how you think about um, the ESG component of, um, of the investment landscape today? Yeah, so I, I'm going to assume like everyone else, when you make reference to ESG, you really mean E, right? Yep. Okay. Um, In the so case of Woodside, Woodside, absolutely. sure, yeah. Um, so... In the case of Woodside and their environmental credentials, I think it's a fact that the world cannot go to, and neither is the world talking about net zero 2022. Mm. It's net zero 2050. And there is a transition and an important one that we recognize uh, uh, between where we are today and this decarbonized future that everyone wants to get to. We can't get there tomorrow and we need transition fuels to help us get there. And we think a company like Woodside plays a very important role in that journey. Uh, predominantly because they are good corporate citizens, produce gas mainly, uh, which is less emitting than other fuels. Uh, and uh, we, we do think owning Woodside and being able to engage with the company is more likely to result in uh, some level of assurance that the company will do the right thing. Uh, not owning a company or being forced to divest a company makes engagement impossible. Take AGL, for example. We're not a shareholder in AGL. 
uh, for a number of reasons, but there, there would be no ability to engage with the board or management on AGL and the, the current corporate activity surrounding the company. Just, mm-hmm. It's not possible. And so to anyone that says a solution for the E and the journey is, is divestment, I, I think I would say that's perhaps a bit short-sighted because you end up selling it to someone who most often cares less then you care about that company's sustainability. And I come back to the, what is the company worth? The company is worth the present value of its future cash flows, and therefore the sustainability of the future cash flows are paramount. Mm. And so why would we own a company if we were not worried about the sustainability of their earnings stream? Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think, I, I do sense that, that the conversation is evolving a little bit on the environmental side of things that, that engagement and ownership platforms are uh, more accepted than perhaps they were 12 or so months ago or before the Ukraine invasion. Yeah. Um, but yeah, of course, there is an S and a G and ES and G that, that are also important. And there are social implications of this decarbonization that we can't ignore. And it, it's multi-layered and it's going to be difficult. So let's talk about contrarian investing. Um, what sits behind the word contrarian for Alan Gray and how do you think, what do you think it means to be contrarian and what are some of the elements of it? Yeah, so I th- at the heart of it is our belief that you can't buy a company cheaply unless there's some bad news associated with that company. Uh, and again, flipping that on its head, companies that have very bright futures uh, are very well liked uh, are generally priced accordingly. And then the converse, obviously, if a company is not liked, uh, you know, there's some structural concerns, it's going through a deep cycle, or uh, there's some company-specific news which is not good. Those are the companies where there could be mispricings on the downside. And so it's looking at those companies and trying to separate companies where we think that the market has got a particularly short-term lens on and where you can pick them up quite cheaply for those who are happy to be patient and hold them for a longer period of time. Uh, and that, that is the contrarian part of contrarian investing for us. It's not buying things just because they're contrarian. I think being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian is, is, is probably foolish. I mean, I, you know, if it looks and smells like a turd, I mean, some things are just that. Uh, whereas, you know, and, and a good example of that in my mind would be some cryptocurrencies and NFTs at the moment. They're, they're not particularly well-liked at the moment. They've gone through some price weakness. Bad uh, news, bad headlines. Yes, exactly. But, but does that mean they're great things to include in a portfolio? I mean, I don't think so. It's hard to actually assess something you think is worth zero. So um, that, that's some of the types of things. But there are other companies that are simply disliked because they've gone through a deep cycle. People try and invest with a catalyst in mind. And there's one thing picking a catalyst. The other thing is making sure you get the timing right. Very difficult. Both of those, getting both of those things right is near impossible. <clears throat> and so contrarian often for us is, is putting the cycle to one side, putting the catalyst to one side, putting the timing to one side and saying, it's broken. This company's needed. It's good. It's cheap. Let's buy it and put it in the back bottom drawer and, and hope in five years or before uh, it, it, it re-rates or, or the value is crystallized. Mm. 
Um, you've talked about seeking out the bad news um, as one filter. I know there's many, and, and it comes down to that intrinsic value. You've also published some articles um, around companies that you think where the, the valuations are completely nuts. There was one on CSL. You published a, a really timely article called Buy Now, Pain Later, um, looking at the value of Afterpay. CSL is off 20%, Afterpay 40% since you published those articles. They're now some of the bad news stories. Is there a time when they start to look attractive to a contrarian investor like yourself? Yeah, I hope so. Um, I don't think it's now. I mean, I think we've seen the hors d'oeuvre. Uh, uh, I think a lot of the buy now, pay later sector is just worthless. Um, it's not clear to me after pay or that part of block mm. uh, will ever make a return. They're the types of companies that have sprung up in very low interest environments. None of them have been through a retail cycle yet because we haven't had one. And so it's very hard to know whether these companies have a right to exist or yeah. will exist. So... Uh, it's typically not the type of company we're attracted to. Of course, there are some tech companies out there that probably are great contrarian ideas. Uh, some of them will be amazing and your money will go up tenfold. But, you know, the probability that you can pick the one or two that do that is very low. Um, and then on the healthcare, these are good. That company you mentioned, CSL, is a very good company. It's done very well. Uh, but but it's... It, it trades at a very high multiple of the the year the, uh, this year's earnings, 2022's earnings. The stock market forecasts it's going to continue to grow at a, uh, around 11% per annum, those earnings, until 2025. And you, you're still paying mid-20s multiples for CSL in 2025 after having five-plus years of 10% growth, many more than five years and, and it, it strikes me that, that that's quite expensive. Uh, there are companies that have international franchises overseas, like Apple and Alphabet, Google, that you can buy at very, very significantly lower multiples of earnings, and those earnings are equally forecast to grow at similar rates. And so, um, I mean, our investing is predominantly Australian-focused, but you know, when I look at CSL and I compare it to very different but perceived high-quality companies overseas, it looks extraordinarily expensive. Uh, so minus 20%, I, I, was, I wasn't aware of the specifics, but it, it doesn't look cheap to us today, and it's not in our portfolio. But I hope one day it will be, but it would have to fall quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the high-growth companies have, have still got more to fall, aren't attractive, the commodities aren't as depressed as they were, and you don't want to own NFTs and Bitcoin. <laughs> is there anything that looks deeply contrarian in the market today? I think so. I think gold you know, is not well liked. I never thought I would say this, but gold is not a liked com- uh, commodity. And, and therefore, I suspect there's some opportunity in the gold space. We own Newcrest. Um, I think energy, if it's not contrarian, I, uh, and it might not be, I do think the energy sector is very cheap in aggregate. And it's a combination of this buyer strike and some of the selling it's pressure. Divisive. It is divisive, of course. And you know, if you're me and you work somewhere where you don't have energy in the portfolio and you've got a client base that says, oh, we don't like energy, uh, you're probably going to seek greener pastures elsewhere. It is, it's, it's quite an awkward thing to own. Um, so I think it's very cheap. Uh, I, 
I'm not sure if it fits the contrarian mold specifically. Uh, I'm now mixing up what is contrarian with what is cheap, and it's you know it's a slippery slope. But I, I think some of these things are very cheap. They may not necessarily be contrarian. But it is a fact there are less contrarian things today than there were, say, 12 months ago. Almost by definition, many of these despised sectors have re-rated and turns out that you know, the, their future wasn't, in fact, woeful. It was just bad. And in the process, the share price has risen quite a lot. Mm. Which is probably why they're less contrarian and people exactly. think to talk yeah. about. Well, Simon, thank you so much for coming in today. I always enjoy when we get the opportunity to, uh, to have a chat, and it was a bit of a surprise for me today. So thank you very much for your time. As um, me, as you can see. <laughs> <laughs> for all you viewers out there, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Simon. As I mentioned, uh, Alan Gray, contrarian investors, and a great exploration of some of their, their big positions in their portfolio at the moment. Remember, if you're a live wire viewer, give us a like on the wire. If you're watching this via YouTube, keep an eye out for new content. We're bringing it to you every week.